Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, the show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess. And I'm John. And I'm Julie. And we are here to bring you a da-bomb, da-best of microbiology, June edition, summer edition, not really sure what we're going to go with here, but it is da-bomb for now. Yeah, we may have skipped the spring edition, but that's all right. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed all our sci-fi and nerdy uh, podcasts because we had a lot of fun building them. And just for something to look forward to, after this episode, we'll be going into a whole season of Gut Microbiome Podcasts. We have everything from interviews to conference synopsis to our own individual study that we did when we tested our own gut microbiome with both Zoe and Fiam. So that is something to look forward to over the summer. Don't forget, we'll be telling everyone what the microbiome is as well. Exactly. So no matter where you are, I'm sure you'll gain a little bit of insight into your gut microbiome. It is an excellent key to your health, and we look forward to bringing that to you. So let's get back to today's podcast of Debon the Best of Microbiology. This is the segment where we bring to you four or five different articles about some top and recent microbiology news that we would like to tell you that really was fantastic and we enjoy. And we try to do it in a wide stream of different microbiology topics from environmental to agriculture to medical to extremophiles, agriculture, biotech, everything, a little bit of everything. So who wants to go first? Ooh, me. I want to go first. All right, Julie, what do you have for us? What was some exciting microbiology news you will bring us today? Well, since it looks like a visit to Yellowstone might be a no-go for this summer, I thought I'd share some super interesting info about Yellowstone's smallest inhabitants. That's right, microbes. And these are microbes that live in very inhospitable environments where basically no one else can live and they are called extremophiles. So researchers have taken water samples near Yellowstone's vents, and they have found these cool extremophiles that have adapted to life at extremely high temps and very acidic conditions. Do you know how acidic or how high the temps are? Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. But first, I wanted to just to put it into perspective. Humans have a very small range that they can exist in, and that's between 6.8 and 7.8 on the pH scale. 7 is neutral on the pH scale. And the lower the number, the more acidic, and the higher, the more alkaline. And you may not know this, but your body is always trying to reach a balance and always keeping your body at the right range. Mm-hmm. And when you're sick, your acidity or your alkalinity can be adjusted. But outside of that 6.8 to 7.8, life is just not sustainable. So you might only think of pH as something that you're dealing with, like in your pool or your hot tub. Or if you think about like when you have heartburn and you take an antacid, that is because basically heartburn is like that acid coming up and you can feel how bad that is for you. You feel that burning sensation and you take an antacid for it. So just thinking about how these extremophiles, they can live 
in these, and, and this happens all over the world, but in Yellowstone, they have a lot of studies going on about these extremophiles because it teaches us about how our bodies work, you know, as far as pH goes. So I think it's really, really interesting. So these extremophiles at uh, Yellowstone has, have adapted to live in these environments and these are fascinating little single-celled archaea. archaea. They've developed a alternate, uh, alternative way. So plants will use photosynthesis. These will use uh, chemosynthesis, and they can actually convert inorganic hydrogen sulfides dissolved from rocks into the food that they use to survive. Nothing like munching on some rocks. There's some nutrition for you. I think that answers one of the questions I was going to pose. Are these in the sulfur pools of Yellowstone? They have found a really wide range of different microbes, and, and they're living in different conditions. So there's some that live actually inside of rocks, and they are, you know, obviously microscopic in the very small pores of rocks. And those rocks are in water that's 95 degrees. Celsius. Fahrenheit. Still hot, but yeah, not that hot. So researchers around the world are not just at Yellowstone. Obviously, they're at the bottom of the ocean looking at these vents at the bottom of the ocean. They're looking in the desert. There's also extremophiles that live in the Antarctic and the extreme dry, extreme cold. So pretty much everywhere we think is inhospitable. We couldn't live there, but these microbes find a way to do that. So When uh, Yellowstone is back open again, and we hope that's soon, and we send good thoughts to the folks that are having to deal with the extreme flooding that's going on out there right now. So when you go back out, check out uh, Black Sand Basin and the Obsidian Pool and the Norris Geyser Basin, Um, and that's where some of the spots that the scientists are um, looking at right now for these extremophiles. And yeah, next time you're there, you'll have some new exciting facts that you can bring and look like a total nerd, which is totally what we would do if we were there. Oh, hell yeah. I'm so excited to go to Yellowstone. It's been on our bucket list for ever? Yeah. Yeah, and that's where uh, we discovered TAC polymerase. And if people don't know what that is, so I'm sure a lot of people have heard, you know, you're getting a PCR test to see if you test positive for COVID. Well, the polymerase is used to really copy that DNA to a point where we can detect it. It's the workhouse. It is. So they may not be using that one now, but really that was the one that they first discovered, which pushed this technology forward so far. Everything had to be done in hand in cycles every single time. So what could be done in a couple hours was at least a day's worth of work by hand. Yeah, and the reason why it's important that we found it in Yellowstone as an extremophile is in a PCR, there's constant temperature changes. So it goes to a really high temperature and then drops down to a lower temperature and goes back up. And so the TAC polymerase, which they found in Yellowstone, is super useful for biotech because it has that high adaptability. It's able to function at a very wide range of temperatures, including really high temperatures where many enzymes get degraded and can't function. I think it's really fascinating that people are just, you know, who who would think that microscopic things that are living in rocks would teach us? I would. I would think that. Yeah. But I think like, <laughs> a lot of people are not thinking that. And, and I, you know, I, I've just been fascinated with the number of studies that are going on that people are like dedicating their lives to 
finding out these cool things and, and just the applications of them in the future is, is going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. There's a lot still to be discovered in the microbial world. Shall we move on to a little bit of biotech? Well, that was a little bit of biotech. Maybe this is a good transition into our biotech piece. Do you got something for us, Tess, on that? I sure do. So, mine is about the $100 genome. So, the history of microbiology could probably be split into two distinct phases. There's the phase of culturing and focusing primarily on diseases and pathogens. This is the start of microbiology. But recently, in the past few decades, we had this huge shift to this era of sequencing. We still use culturing, but having sequencing as part of our toolkit, we're really able to understand the microbial diversity even beyond what we could with culturing. But sequencing is not cheap. While it's getting cheaper basically every day, it still costs a pretty penny. So today what we have is called Illumina, and and this has been kind of the queen of sequencing hill for over a decade now. So this is what we call short read Illumina sequencing. You sequence very small pieces of DNA and then you assemble it together. We're talking small pieces like a couple hundred base pairs, right? And a typical microbial genome is probably four to six million base pairs, we can say. And the human genome is much bigger than that. So it's like sort of trying to grapple, like coming up with a couple hundred base pairs, and then you have to assemble it to uh, six million base pairs, right? That's a that's a puzzle to figure out. It's like the worst puzzle to try to assemble. Yes. But although Lumina has been the queen of the sequencing hill for a few decades, it's about to get a little shakeup in the sequencing world. It's about to get a little Games of Thronesy, if you will, to which I say, winter is coming, Illumina. Winter is coming. Is it from a company that's already out there or a newer one? Both. So there's actually a bunch of things that are coming up. So Illumina has been kind of the top dog for a while, but their patents are expiring this year or maybe next year. I'm not exactly sure, but it's definitely soon. So who is in strategic alignment for the power play of Westeros of sequencing? PacBio. PacBio is definitely there. So first off, we have PacBio, who's a long read sequencing technology platform. This is much longer than these Illumina short reads. So our puzzle is a little bit less complex because we have longer pieces of DNA. But PacBio is rather expensive. And its accuracy is much lower than Illumina. Now, they're finding ways to increase that accuracy, although always subpar to what we have in Illumina. But again, every day it's getting a little better. Another one up in the up for this power play is Oxford Nanopore, which also specializes in long read sequencing. It is slightly better in a, in a slightly better financial position than PacBio, as their services are a little bit cheaper, which is making them um, a little bit of a front runner, I would say, right now in the long read technologies. But there are also both of these technologies have been around for, I don't know, five Five, 10 years, maybe not quite 10 years, but they've been around for a little bit. There are a number of newer and younger companies that are also coming out to play, one of which is Ultima Genomics, which is really shaking up the field and challenging people's allegiance in the sequencing world. 
So Ultima Genomics announced recently, I think it was just last week, that they could provide human genomes for $100. Wow. That's really cheap. Yeah. The current going rate, for those that don't know, in genomics is, is a human genome. You could probably sequence for about $500 to $600. But this does not include this $100 mark, does not include labor. It doesn't include pre or post processing or analysis, which will definitely increase the, the genomics. So if you're just getting DNA, it's not super useful. So it's probably going to end up being around $500 with everything. Yeah, it'll be more expensive. But that $500 is, is comparable to say. And this also assumes this $100 mark also assumes that you are stuffing in as much DNA as possible into every single run. You're not running any half runs. You're not running any partial runs. You are sequencing at full capacity to get to that $100 mark, right? The more we put in, the cheaper it is per genome per sequence. Right. So Ultima was working with the Broad Institute and they publish a number of preprints that you can go check out where they're benchmarking their technology to Illumina. And they report it's on par with Illumina, but it's a little bit cheaper in the cost reduction. And everything that I've read on par can be pretty vague. Just to note, it still did not have the high accuracy that we see with Illumina sequencing. There's also another company, a China-based company called MGI, which is also expanding into new territories as they set to start selling their machines in the USA this summer. This is another company that will shake up the Illumina stronghold on the sequencing technologies. They promise to be even more accurate than Illumina, and their technology is actually closer to Illumina's technology than Ultima is. They also say it's going to be cheaper than the Illumina sequencing. But Illumina is not ready to be dethroned just yet, and they sure as hell aren't going down without a fight. In addition to enhancing the chemistries of their already state-of-the-art and standard short-read sequencing to be even more accurate, inexpensive, and flexible, Illumina is launching a new platform called Infinity, which is their solution to keep PacBio and Nanopore at bay. Infinity will likely not be on the market for commercial use until next year, but Illumina is promising this new technology will have long reads up to 10 KB and requires 90% less DNA than other long-read technologies. So you need lower input than you do with PacBio and Nanopore. And of course, they're still promising the high accuracy that we've all come to know and love with Illumina technology. So who will sit on the Iron Throne of sequencing? Or more importantly, who will rise as the crowd favorite only to ultimately be destroyed in the most atrocious way possible? We're looking at you, uh, 454 pyro sequencing. Oh, that's already destroyed. I know. That's why I mentioned it. <laughs> I'm sure others will fall on the, the claim to the sequencing throne. Who are the consumers of all of this sequencing? Like who uses it? Yeah. Like, like is it medical companies? Is it like are doctors using it yet? Like widely? Yeah, so it is definitely getting into hospitals more and more, generally the larger hospitals with more expenses. So they're able to sequence genomes so they can do this for both at the microbial level to look at certain strains. So a lot of COVID strains are identified through sequencing, and that's how we get all our strain identifications there. But you can also use it to help diagnosis of non-microbial diseases as well. It's uh, also widely used in academia and also the uh, biotech industry or pharma industry as well. Do you see a day where like regular people will be consumers? 
regular people are consumers in a way. Like um, 23andMe, you send in your samples and someone sequences your DNA and you're looking at the output of that DNA. Different thing. Yeah. Biome and Zoe are also collecting samples from people and they sequence that DNA from your poop and then you can look at the output of that of their sequencing analysis. So I think it is becoming more and more mainstream for the common person. If they can um, land that 10 KB, that will I think that'll come right up there still. Yeah, yeah, I think Infinity looks really exciting as a technology as a sequencing platform and will sort of it should be sort of interesting as other people start using it and what the output looks like. So, John, do you want to talk to us a little bit about some medical microbiology? Yeah, so this debomb, I decided to focus on monkeypox since this is the big new virus. Yeah, so first I'm going to get in, uh, talk about the virus and then the outbreak and possible treatments that we have or preventive measures. It is a DNA virus that's found in the orthopox virus genus. And this is a genus of viruses that also includes smallpox and cowpox. Humans get cowpox. That's actually how we discovered immunization against smallpox originally. Oh, right, right, right. Edward Jenner. Right. Mm-hmm. People were being vaccinated with cowpox, and that gave them immunity to smallpox. Right, right. So oddly, this is a brick-shaped virus, which... A what? Brick-shaped. A brick. Yeah. Like a red brick. No, no. Brick-shaped, not brick-colored. Yeah, but like that's what you're talking yeah. about. It's a rectangular? Yes, and it's also enveloped. What does that mean? It, it has like um, an outer membrane that's similar to our the membrane on our cells. There are also two genetic clades, the Congo Basin and the West African clade. I don't really know what the difference is, except that the Congo is historically more severe and transmittable. What's a clade? Can you help me out on that one? So it's like a lineage, right? Yeah. It's a, a the strains or there's two different forms or two different families of monkeypox. Mm-hmm. One is traditionally from the Congo and the other is from West African. West African. So they're geographically isolated. Right. Okay. Okay. But they're two they're the same virus but different flavors. Yeah. So monkeypox was first found in 1958 and, of course, monkeys. But the first human case was recorded in Democratic Republic of Congo in 1970. And that's actually where most cases uh, occur since then, since the discovery. I don't know what the current rate is, but I know that's like one of the epis or not epicenters. That's where it's commonly found whenever cases outbreak. It happens in areas that are proximal to rainforests. But I've, but it has been appearing more and more in urban areas. They don't know what the current reservoir of the virus is. So they know it originates from an animal, but they don't know what the, the reservoir animal is. The reservoir for the virus, like, they don't exactly know, like, where it normally resides. A lot of, a lot of diseases normally reside in, like, an animal that transmitted to people, but they don't know where the origin or where it resides normally all the time. Uh, they do believe it may be rodents because rodents are a good reservoir for a lot of diseases that transmit to humans. Yeah, they are. I'm, my next story is about rodents. <laughs> and it can also infect squirrels and rat species. And so the incubation is about 7 to 14 days. And the signs and symptoms resemble those seen in smallpox infections, but they're less contagious and generally cause less severe illness than smallpox. 
the big difference between the two is monkeypox causes your lymph nodes to swell. Smallpox doesn't do that? No. That's one of the key defining features between the two. It starts off with a fever. Then you develop a headache, muscle aches, chills, and exhaustion. And then a rash develops after three days after the fever starts. And that's those rashes turn to, you know, those lesions. If you've had like chicken pox before, similar. Or shingles. Yeah. That's fun too. And they often start in the face and then spread throughout the body. Oh, so it's not local. It's not localized. It's full body and starts in the face? Yes. I'm going to get back to that though. There's, a, there's an asterisk. Uh, the illness will also last for two to four weeks, and complications include sepsis, encephalitis, and infection of the cornea. Oof. I think that's because you can develop lesions in your eye, and then they can cause infection. To diagnose it, we already kind of said it is a PCR. It's a preferable uh, method. You can't really do an antigen antibody because it's cross-reactive with other diseases. It's similar to smallpox. It's similar to cowpox and others. So it's not really a reliable test. And the mortality I've seen on several different websites with varying percentages. One said it's a 10% death rate. Some say 3 to 6% fatal. And then this current uh, outbreak, I believe, is around 1% fatality that they're seeing. So Depending on the source, it's. I think it's also depending on the strain you get, too. As it always is. Yeah. This week's episode of The Micro Moment is brought to you by Zymo Research. Accurate and reproducible microbiome analysis relies on well-defined mock community standards as well as optimized methods for sample collection, nucleic acid extraction, library prep, and bioinformatics. Check out Zymo's complete microbiome workflow at zymoresearch.com. That's Z-Y-M-O-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H.com. Is it also about, like, if somebody's immunocompromised, that they're going to end up with a more severe case? I'm assuming so. That's usually the case. If someone's immunocompromised, if they get something, it's usually bad news. It's spread primarily through direct contact, but it can also be through respiratory secretions. So, like, if you're talking to someone it for long periods of time without, like, a barrier, it can, it can potentially infect that other person. It also can sp spread through body fluids. And pass through the placental barrier. So that body fluids, that kind of relates to the current outbreak. Although I didn't see a definite time period, pox uh, virus itself, pox viruses can live outside the body for a long time. Using soap and water is probably the best way on your hands. That's a great way to break up viruses that have um, membranes, outer membranes. So there was an outbreak in 2019 in Nigeria where there was 200 reported cases and 500 suspected cases. And there was actually a case in the U.S. in 2003 where someone was infected by their, by their pet prairie dog. Prairie dogs. Why, why, why do you have a pet prairie dog? I don't know. Some things just don't need to be pets. 
All right, I know they're cute, but they naturally harbor Yersinia pestis, which gives you the plague. Not great. And the reservoirs for monkeypox. Yeah. So this initial infection led to an outbreak of 70 cases. In, in the U.S. In the U.S. And since then, there's also been cases in Israel, U.K., and Singapore. This brings us to our current outbreak. Although this data is a little, mo- oh, little more than a month old, the WHO, the World Health Organization, reported that it's primarily spreading through sex and the spread may have been amplified by sexual encounters at two raves in Europe. That seems to be the epicenter. I haven't been able to find any new news differing from what they think. And it's been reported in 39 count, 39 countries in 2022 alone. And the top five countries with the most cases include the UK, Spain, Germany, Portugal, and Canada. Wow, that was some rave. Yeah. There's around 3,100 confirmed or suspected cases in the world with 72 deaths. And in the U.S., there are 72. This is as if two or three days ago. In the U.S., there are 72 cases in 18 states in the last month, which was up from 19 cases at the beginning of June. So we're not, we're just over halfway June. It went up from 19 to 72. And the symptoms have also been different. First, a rash in the mouth or the generals here. And they see scattered or localized lesions with flu-like symptoms developing after the rash. Rash surfaces, it doesn't spread throughout the body. It seems to be localized or appear sporadically. And then you get flu-like symptoms. And so this was what CDC was reporting. And the World Health Organization also has seen this pattern outside of Africa. And as of right now, there have been no deaths outside of Africa. It's the West African strain, so it's a lot less severe. And it's spreading, has a mortality rate of 1% so far. And so the CDC says if you have flu-like symptoms, quarantine for five days. And if a rash does not appear by the end of that time, the virus is likely ruled out. I mean, that's also like if you have flu-like symptoms, they say quarantine anyways because of COVID. But If you have flu-like symptoms, quarantine anyways. Yeah. It doesn't matter what sickness it is. True. Stay home and rest. You don't want to spread it. Get healthy. Don't make other people sick. And then those that test positive uh, for this virus should quarantine until their scabs have fallen off, like I said. And the WHO is having a meeting next Thursday, which will be June 23rd of 2022, to see if this outbreak should be declared a global emergency or not. Yeah, so actually, my, are you, do you have more monkeypox? Yes, I wanted to talk about vaccination for Do they have vaccination? They do. Is it a new vaccination or one that was developed back in the mid-20th century? There's two vaccines out there. Mm, okay. So vaccines that were used to treat smallpox also give protection to monkeypox. And the vaccination against smallpox shows it to be about 85% effective. Oh, wow. Do it. Uh, I don't know the sample size, but they did say over several observational studies that they saw this. And this smallpox vaccine is called ACAM2000. And the U.S. has has more than 100 million doses of it. And what the FDA said about it is it's administered different than a shot. Those that had smallpox vaccines before will probably remember this. There's like a two-prong needle that's dipped into the vaccine and then pricked several times on the arm to give vaccination. That's just so many people will be lining up for that. 
Yeah. You didn't have to get smallpox, right? I don't think so. I feel like you would have remembered that. It seems traumatic. It does sort of sound familiar, though, but I'm, I'm not sure. Like, when, when was the last time we routinely vaccinated against smallpox? Well, it was eradicated in 1980, so I would imagine probably, I didn't see, but I would imagine about mid-80s is probably when they stopped just because it, it had been gone for five I years. You must have had I it. I must have had it then. Do you so. do you have like um? But a yeah, scar you have a scar forever. Yeah, in Outlander, it was how you how that lady was a witch and how she knew she was from the future. I will look at my immunization records because now I am curious. And so, what this does is it actually causes a lesion on your arm, but then it'll the scab. Yeah, but then it'll scab over and fall off. So if I had the vaccine back in the seventies, does that mean I would I am less likely to get monkeypox if I was exposed to it? I'm not exactly sure. So one of the things about vaccines is how long do they last after you after you get the vaccine? I know that in the U.S. everyone has to get what hepatitis B vaccine. I had the three course treatment, but then when I went to work in the hospital, I didn't have an antibody titer anymore. Like I had to get more hepatitis B series done. So, and everyone's a little different, right? It all kind of depends. So I don't know if you do have immunity or resistance to it or not. If you got the smallpox, you really, the only way to test would be to look at antibodies, at least for smallpox. And so this is made by an attenuated vaccina virus, which is similar. So that's how they you're able to get immunity. There's a second one called Jameos, which uses the same virus, but it's not only attenuated, it actually um, it can't replicate at all either. And that's two shots over a month period. And... That's the only FDA approved specifically for monkeypox right now. And the U.S. has 36,000 doses, but the manufacturer has 1 million in hold for the U.S. if there is like a bigger outbreak. And there's also an antiviral treatment for it, but I don't know how effective it is. So I think they're just trying to be very aggressive about this. Any other monkeypox? They will be possibly renaming it there's talk in the scientific community just because they feel it's an insensitive name only because uh it's called monkeypox and for like the longest time african people were being shown as only the people like in all textbooks so they're they feel there's a stigma with it and so they're going to be trying to rename it as soon as possible do you have any idea what they're going to rename it to no one has thrown names out yet Okay, should we move on to my plague? Let's let's hear what your plague is. Okay, so sticking with epidemics, pandemics, with my medieval theme of Westeros that we had last time, let's talk about an ancient epidemic. The OG plague, the Black Plague, caused by none other than Yersinia pestis. Ba-ba-ba! Our dog? Not our dog. No. She's too cute. So... This comes from a paper called The Source of the Black Death in 14th Century Central Eurasia. It kind of lays out the whole thing right there, but I'm going to go a little bit into what they actually found. 
So this was a research article by Maria Spryro, Lizette Mussolini, Guido Janecki, Roscon, Arthur Coker, Pierre Giorgio Borbin, Valerie Kartanovich, Alexandra Bozilova, Leila Johnson-Grova, Kristen Bose, Denise Kohernet, Wolfgang Hack, and Philippe Slavin, and Johannes Kraus. Anyways, I apologize profusely for everyone's names. I just butchered so bad, but I tried. So while we know a lot about the Black Death and its dissemination, we've even talked about it on this podcast a couple times. Most recently in our collaboration podcast with Petri Dish, where we talked about medieval, was it medieval medicine? Yeah. Yeah, that was a fun episode. Some of the treatments like strapping chickens onto the buboes. Yeah, chicken butt. Interesting episode, but this is different from that. This is talking about the origins of the Black Death. And the origins have been quite an enigma to scientists, historians, and archaeologists alike. As horrific as our current pandemic is, it still hasn't caused a level of catastrophe as the Black Death did in the 14th century. While COVID has taken the lives of over 6 million people, according to John Hopkins today when I looked it up, Yersinia pestis took the lives of 60% of the Western Eurasian population in eight short years. Some people I think numbers throw out are usually around 25 million, which is a ton of people. Can you imagine what the world population would be today if that didn't sweep through? Oh, man. I mean, if if COVID got that bad, we'd be decimated. It'd be like society as we know it would collapse. So prior to this paper, historical genetic and ecological research proposed that the emergence of the various branches of Yersinia pestis lineage occurred more than a century before the Black Death event. So when we're talking about lineages here, it goes back to when we were talking about clades before with monkeypox and how there are sort of different flavors of pathogens that emerge throughout time. And it is or was believed that this major emergence of the Black Death event can be connected to outbreaks around the Black Sea in 1346, primarily due to warfare, but also from trades um, contributing to the spread. And I would also throw in there that the lack of hygiene, crowded conditions, and the lack of knowledge of the microbial world or germ theory also had a much to do about the dissemination of Yersinia pestis and the profound morbidity around the Black Death. I'd agree. Mm-hmm. So how can this nearly 700-year-old mystery be solved today? It doesn't involve digging up dead bodies of the plague. You know it does. So near a lake in Izik Kal in what is now known as Kyrgyzstan, there is a 700-year-old cemetery. And beneath the tombstone, there lies a handful of individuals that were laid to rest between 1338 and 1339, just a few short 10 years before that Black Sea incident that was usually attributed as the emergence of the Black Death. And individuals that died here were deemed by the 14th century medicine people as to have died from pestilence, which is vague. Yeah, it could be anything. Yeah, pestilence is a lot of things. Record keeping back then was very different, not as good. Well, I mean, they probably didn't care that much. But hidden in this tomb is more than just the skeletons. There are ancient microbial DNA that lies within this tomb, 
Could this tomb be the site of the first victims taken down by the powerful strain of Yersinia pestis that eventually wiped out Europe? I don't know, is it? These researchers think so. So what they did was they were comparing the ancient ancient DNA to modern-day Yersinia pestis strains, and strains kind of throughout history as well, as well as to some non-human strains, strains that are found in other animals. And they're piecing together how the different strains or the different genomes of this microbe have changed in the different regions, time, and space that they collected the sample from. Researchers extracted genomic DNA from seven bodies from two different cemeteries that were in near this lake. Using shotgun metagenomics, they were able to find fragments of Yersinia pestis and enough to actually form two genomes of the microbe. And compared, they compared these two genomes that they found in this site in the cemeteries to 46 other Yersinia pestis genomes, which have been collected from um, specimen that have died between the 14th and 19th century and compared them for evolutionary changes. Both the genomes were highly similar to each other and separate from the other genomes of the study. Phylogenetic analysis revealed that these two genomes were the most recent common ancestor of the deadly disease, meaning they were somewhere between these more modern genomes of Yersinia pestis and the ancient one. So they were kind of this link between the two. So these genomes are the closest thing that we have to the pandemic's true origins. This shifts a lot of what we previously thought we knew about the Black Plague. It creates an origin to the Black Death lineage in 1338, not a century before, like some of the other studies have reported, and not 10 years after in 1346 to the Black Sea, where a lot of people believe that warfare at the Black Sea was a major drive of this disease. Now, interestingly, is this lake actually sits in the ancient Trans-Asian networks, meaning it was a huge hub of trade, likely being a major cause of the spread of the Black Death. Well, that really shifts everything, huh? Yeah, it was a pretty cool study, and I would say the paper was very readable. It was very reader-friendly, which I always like when a paper doesn't try to sound overly smart. I'm sorry. Every time you say Yersinia, I just think about your dog. Yeah, she's pretty cute. And she is a little pestis. I mean, every time I hear it now, I, I still think to your grandmother saying that she got it. I know. I can't believe my grandmother got the plague. So, it's yeah, this I mean, this disease is still around today. And the strain that my grandmother got was not the same strain that was revolving around medieval uh, Eurasia back in the 14th century. Which is good, because I probably wouldn't be here today if it was. So... We've talked quite a bit about plagues, pandemics, epidemics, diseases. What are we finishing off with, Julie? Well, I have some good news, and it's pretty interesting, about a parasite wasp that might be able to save fruit crops. And this is this just came out yesterday, actually. A recent study at the University of Tsukuba is studying a wasp species Asobara japonica, which is a parasite, which means that it sustains its life by stealing resources from a host, in this case, a fruit fly. 
So what happens is the wasp mother secretes a venom that's full of toxic components that overcome the host's immune defenses. And this enables the baby wasp to basically eat the fruit fly as it gestates. From the inside out? Yes. So... The interesting part of this is, and we talked a little bit about, you know, genome sequencing and stuff. So they are using some of these molecular biology techniques to devise protocols for gene knockdown, which means that they're able to pinpoint genes and be able to actually modify them. So they can take that one gene and affect how the wasp, in this case, they figured out the gene that determines the body color of the wasp. And so they were able to adjust that one gene. And so if they can do it with one gene, then it would stand to reason that they would be able to do it with other genes. So what they're thinking, um, and they haven't been able to do this yet, but the continuing study would be that they would be able to find the particular gene that is this uh, toxic substance. And if they can isolate that, that might be something that they could use instead of pesticides and other damaging poisons that we use to kind of control insects that might damage crops. So I just, it, it just amazes me again, like, how do people come up with a study like that to figure out, you know, these wasps are, are able to kind of kill off or, or affect the immune system of a fruit fly with a secretion that maybe we can, you know, copy at some point and use it to control pests. Um, so I, I thought that was pretty amazing. I think it's quite several observational studies first. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different studies going out there right now about controlling, using biology to control biology. I think this is a really fantastic debomb. I learned a lot. I think this is the one I've learned the most in. And we had very interesting, very different, yet similar topics today. So nicely done, everybody. Well, Microbial Nation, that is the end of our show. We hope you keep listening, and we hope you subscribe and tell your friends about the Micro Moment with Microbials. And as we mentioned before... For the next couple months, next several months, we'll be diving into the world of your gut microbiome to get you culture on your gut culture. We also have a website where we have a bunch of blogs where we talk about everything from microbiologists and history to different pathogens, some symbionts, and even some Halloween-themed microbes. Brought to you by a wonderful set of teachers at the Society of Symbionts teaching microbe kids, if you will, all about their world. So uh, join us for that. It's very fun and you'll learn a lot. Just go to microbegals.com. And if that's too much to remember, you can always find us on Facebook and Twitter at Microbegals and tell us what your favorite news of the microbial world has been over the last couple of months. Until next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.